Hello and welcome to ClapperCast, a weekly discussion of all things cinema. I'm your host, Clapper Editor-in-Chief, Jack Luke Sharp, and today I'm joined by Rory Marsh. Hi there. George Lewis. Hello there. Pietro Falcone. Hello. And Paul Anderson. Hello. On this week's episode, we're discussing acclaimed horror relic, the Eliza Scanlon vehicle Baby Teeth, and Creator's French foray, The Truth. Let's begin with Natalie Erica James's relic. What is that? Emily Mortimer stars in this horror where a woman links her mother's increasingly volatile behaviour to an evil presence at their family's decaying country home. Paul, you're tackling this one for Clapper. How does Natalie Erica James's directorial debut stack up? Yeah, so a directorial debut is always an interesting is always an interesting time for me. It's kind of a time where you go, is this person going to be a new talent or not? And horror is a genre that I'm quite a big fan of. So I was quite looking forward to this one, to be honest. Um, and I think for the most part, I think it delivered for me. Um, it delivered for me in some areas and not others, I will be 100% honest. But I very much thought that this had um, a decent atmosphere going in, um, going into the beginning of it. So to give you some idea of the, of the setup of it, you have um, a family moving in. Basically, there's a, a daughter, a mother and a grandmother um, who are all quite a tight knit family. The grandmother is feeling uh, rather unwell and looks like she's going to need some form of care going forward, potentially um, suffering from dementia. Um, you've got her daughter here played by Emily Mortimer and a granddaughter played by Bella Heathcote um, and Edna the grandmother is played by Robert Nevin so it's kind of like you, you go into this house the family spend time the family spend time with the grandmother and you think there's definitely something wrong here the grandmother is sort of acting strangely it's alluded to the fact that maybe this is a sort of a haunted house movie and to an extent it is um, and for me that's where the film probably works best is as a more traditional haunted house film I think the film has quite a lot of atmosphere um, going into it I thought the performances were, were decent enough although I think George will probably correct me on the strength of some of the characters later from what we talked about before but I like the performances enough and I think the film had atmosphere in spades and for me I can forgive a lot about horror films if they have atmosphere I thought the thing was quite a grown-up story I quite liked I quite liked its approach to the material what I didn't like as much for me is when you kind of get towards the end and the film for me falls into kind of lazy lazy kind of running around the house horror tropes that I didn't much like that I didn't think the film needed I think it drifted into very silly silly territory before the end um, and that kind of uh, and that kind of led it down for me so I think a competent debut a reasonably strong horror film but with some I had some issues I don't want to completely replicate what Paul's just said but I must admit um, I've come away from from the film and I have exactly the same thoughts more or less 
I think for a, a debut, horror is always really the way to go. You know, you've got Danny Boyle, who started out with Shallow Grave, and you can always evolve into something quite special. It's a really good starting off point with a small, relatively good budget, usually in a one um, one setting environment, and you can you can really exploit that if you're comfortable and you're um, knowledgeable director of the craft. I think um, Natalie Erica James is definitely one to watch after this. But I come away with the same slight issues that Paul has, but I've also can't say anything highly more of a strength. I think the performance throughout, I think Emily Mortimer is relatively good. Um, I think she's got probably a lot less to do than she, that that character automatically should do in that environment, especially in that story, in that mother story. I think it comes into its own in the third act, which I've got issues with and I'll go into a little bit later. But I think Bella Heathcote's performance as, uh, as the daughter, who I've only ever really seen in Neon Demon, I know she's popped up in things throughout, she really impressed me here. Uh, but her character with the um, mother, uh, the grandmother, should say, Robin Nevins as, as Edna, that dynamic there is, is probably the, the issue that speaks mostly for what, what the negativity I've got to say is that it's just sort of derived by horror convention. And I think it's a film that really suffers from it. Throughout its two thirds, its opening two thirds anyway, it has that sort of similar vein to Hereditary and the, the Babadook specifically. This new wave of Australian horror as an allegory for mental health. And in this case, as Paul said, it, there's a, a very clear indication of, a, of dementia, which I think is an element uh, which hasn't really been explored in the horror department enough. So it's quite a welcoming and interesting uh, um, allegory to have. And on the first watch, I, th I felt as a slow methodical drama with horror conventions, it, it is that until its third act. And on a first watch, as I've just said, the horror convention in that, that third act itself feels refreshing. But when the film settles, to me, it felt really out of place. There's very a clear sort of conjuring, hereditary inspired style that comes about. And it's, it does work. But like I said, after the fact, when it settles in, it feels quite jarring, connected to sort of the drama elements. Um, I think uh, Erica James uses space incredibly well, utilizes the setting rather effectively, especially in the sort of the house, how the uh, subvert expectations of the house itself has got something to do with a plot, which I won't give away. Um, I think ultimately the final scene ultimately gives into narrative tropes and slightly undermines the personal intimate themes of the film itself but it does work. So I don't want to be too brash and be too uh, negative, but it's just a little bit too on the nose to me. But for a dark brooding aesthetic, and as, as I said earlier, a new wave of Australian horror, it's effective and it's, it's, it's rather well done. So I, I, was, I, was, I was really, really taken back by it. It's only if that director would have sort of, would have been a little bit more restrained on the, on the conventions and the tropes. I think we could have got something really special here. But End of the day, I was rather impressed by it. So after reading all the reviews that came out from Sundance, I was really curious to know why the ending was so moving for all the critics that saw it there. And uh, I thought that actually it wasn't really moving because maybe it's where the movie gets really, uh, really allegorical and uh, I didn't kind of like it. I think that the characters were uh, weren't really uh, they weren't really um, credible. I don't know how to say that, but actually they they she really tries to make this movie work, 
and I think like Jack sa uh, said that uh, it's the ending is the real problem of the movie because when it starts and when it mm, kind of tries to mm, work with all the horror cliches, it, it does it in a really new way. But when all the, those cliches have to, um, to be explained, she really don't actually goes there. Yeah, so, so for me, I think the idea on paper works much better than the, what it actually turns out as. So as mentioned, the kind of allegory towards uh, dementia. I, th I think it's a, it's a really good idea. And I think to, to the filmmaker's credit, even the ending, when it, when it goes for like, the big ending with these, with these horror kind of tropes, it's still rooted in the ideas that have, that have come before it. So for that, I give it credit. The problem is the characters themselves, for me anyway, are like pawns in the whole film that, that are defined by the roles that it needs to get there. So they, they don't really have any defining characteristics, especially in the case of uh, Emily Mortimer's character, just kind of a, just like a blanket of a character which everything is put on. And I kind of get it to an extent that that is the point, but for the film to work and especially the end to work, and the, there's some good imagery at the end. And I can see why some people have, uh, kind of lauded the ending it's it's not scary because ultimately for me I did not care what happened to the characters in the slightest so I was a passive kind of viewer throughout the whole thing and while while I think there was some, some good ideas it didn't really engage with me emotionally or at all to be honest it, it didn't scare me and I kind of come out of it thinking this is another horror film that will be probably well received for doing the bare minimum of having an idea rather than doing it with any great gusto or energy. Uh, so I haven't had the chance to see the film itself yet, but on the surface of what I've seen in marketing and things like that, it looks very much to be, if not influenced by, then in the vein of something like Ari Aster's Hereditary, which was obviously another huge horror debut with huge critical acclaim and things like that, this kind of domestic setting. But um, my question is, is this going to be a film, in you guys' opinion, that will maybe not strike the public consciousness as much as Hereditary did, but have a similar impact? Or do you think this is one of those ones that's kind of, as George was saying, get high critical acclaim and then kind of peter away and just be kind of a device that allows this director to move her career forward rather than something that's going to remain in the kind of horror zeitgeist uh, for, you know, months to come. I think it's difficult to sort of compare it to Ari Aster's Hereditary because that's a, that's a, a, a feature-length directorial debut that's otherwise outside the norm. I think that's a, that's a masterpiece in its own right. I don't think there's sort of any expectation of it, but there, there is a newfound, like I said before, an, an Australian new way of horror scene that's that's very difficult to sort of live up to expectations to be this next hereditary but it is not to contradict myself but it is very similar to the Babadook rather than hereditary but was they both got very similar themes and they're both shot in a very similar stylized manner and as I've said before that the space utilized is, is, is quite energetic and it's 
it's dark, it's claustrophobic. There's, there's quite clearly directors behind the camera on these films that understand the genre. But it, it, isn't, it isn't hereditary. And I'm, that's, I'm, not, I'm trying not to be so A, naive and, and, and be slightly negative because this is a good film, but it's, it's more on the lines of a, of a drama that has horror intentions. But those intentions are just coming a little bit too late for me, a little bit too strong. But if anyone's seen the Babadook, it, it is it is sort of a a good double bill, a, a good double uh, billing, if you will. But consider the, the zeitgeist of horror is such a strange thing because at the moment, in the last ten years, we've had such a, a sort of overall of what we expect from that genre. I mean, horror's always been that thing where it sort of gets reset culturally every sort of couple of decades and we're, we're currently in the midst of something now you know with John Peel's Get Out, Shyamalan's Split sort of reinventing the wheel and then now you've got like Babadook under the radar this is definitely a part of that whole zeitgeist as you said Rory most definitely but it's very clearly a directorial debut and that's not a bad thing it just it has it has slight issues but it's nothing that should take away from the overall thing but it's just interesting to, to hear what George said in his comparisons to Redditor because I feel everything that George said about Relic, you can easily sort of attribute that to Redditory as well. I think you could also have the same issues with John Peel's Us, whereas I think all those films, bar Relic, I haven't reviewed it as of yet, I'm still formulating really my opinion on it, but Hereditary and Us for me are, are masterpieces in their, in their own right. Midsummer, not so much in the same vein, but Us and, um, and Hereditary, very similar of that blanket statement. So, so blanket characters, uh, uh, George, sorry, I didn't want to uh, put words into your mouth there. So it'd just be interesting what the comparisons you'd find, George, on, on Hereditary. Did you enjoy Hereditary? I haven't seen it. See, that, that's the one for me. I think I, it'd be interesting if you'd have watched Hereditary first, then watch this, but obviously you've seen Relic. I would jump, I would jump into Hereditary and see, see if that sort of changes your opinion. You've seen um, The Babadook, haven't you? I haven't seen that either. I've seen, wow. I've seen us, and I did have problems with us as well. Okay, I th- but that uh, yeah. was more that was more narrative things than kind of character. That was just more plot. Yeah, um, I'd be I'd be very very interested to see what you you say about Hereditary and and um, I had a similar pro- similar problem with The Witch, Robert Eggers' first film. Although I, th- I it- think the the Witch is much more. I got more of the atmosphere in The Witch than I did in this. But my okay. problem with the the witch was the the kind of dialogue because it's obviously spoken in the the old uh, yes, New England old dialect. Yeah, that actually took me out of it. So you kind of have the really muted uh, like color schemes and atmosphere mixed with quite, for lack of a better word, theatrical dialogue, and it was like polar opposites kind of clashing together. So for every moment I was into it, as soon as they opened their mouths, I'm straight out of it again. But I, I was definitely more kind of unnerved by the witch than I was in, in Relic. I would, as a recommendation to you right now, I, I'd say that I'd definitely go seek the Babadook out. I think you'll have issues with Hereditary from what you've said about Relic and us. But I think you should jump into the Babadook because I think you'd, you would enjoy that. And I think it would... I don't think it'll change your opinion on Relic so so much, but it it'll, it might sort of alter it to say, well, actually, compared to this, it's not so far off. But um, it's interesting to, uh, to 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 get an opinion on it, most definitely.
Yeah, I just wanted to jump back in on, on that point, kind of talking about hereditary and the witch and the Babadook and this kind of thing. And from my perspective, it seems to be, it's, it's interesting that you haven't seen those before going into Relic. I would be intrigued to see what you make of those. But there are, there is a movement of people out there who genuinely don't like those films. For me personally, I think this is probably the, ty the, the time when horror's almost finally grown up as a genre. That's not to say I'm not a fan of slashers. I am. I love slasher films. Um, I've got no issue with those films. I've got no issue with kind of, with gory, silly horror films at all. I enjoy those. But for me, this recent wave of horror has been, it feels like it's finally approaching issues that horror has either touched badly, has really done badly before. The representation of mental illness in horror is a whole essay in itself. Um, I just feel that it's, it's touching more grown up themes and I, I quite like this. And I don't think Relic is as, you know, going back to your question, Rory, I don't think Relic will stay in the mind as long as Hereditary will um, or as long as the Babadook will. But it certainly, it certainly for me can hold its head to a certain level alongside those films as one of this kind of new wave of, I'd say more, for want of a better word, more emotionally mature horror films, I guess. And those certainly aren't, aren't to everyone's taste, but to me they are. And I think this, I said up until the end when it just gets a bit silly, when people are just being chased around the house unnecessary, um, mild spoiler there. Um, like that's up until that point, I thought it could hold its head with those films. And I am all about this director and I think this, certainly shows promise um but yeah george i'd be interested to see what very interested to see what you make of uh, what you make of hereditary and certainly the babadook i really i really find that interesting paul about the horror growing up that's such an interesting statement because you know the dawn of horror was all about universal monster movies in, in the 1930s and we look back on that now with with sort of a more cultured eyes and the the analogy there of every sort of major monster being an immigrant or being from a foreign land coming to to the western world to the uk or to america and trying to sort of find a new way of life that, that, that those films live far beyond that era purely because of, of the notion of of its themes so it's interesting you know we speak about you know the female gaze in horror which is which has had a very interesting sort of life even in carpenter's films so it is interesting to sort of put that forward where, you know, often than not, art reflects society and what's happening in the culture and the zeitgeist itself is, is always an ever evolving thing to, to a certain degree. I think now with, with, we live in a world where if you, have a, if a, you have a sex scene in a horror film, it has to mean something now. I think that's a good thing because it, there should never be a, ever be an exploitation, even though ironically that, that genre become, comes from an exploitation um, emphasis. It is interesting now where this sort of direction horror is going to evolve to because we, you know, we've seen Jordan Peele put a tremendous amount of social commentary. You know, Babadook, what was it? 11 2010 around that I mean, you know it's ten, almost 10 years now i'm sorry it's probably not even that old it's probably about five or six years old but i apologize so it's interesting to see how far we've gone yet we're still staying in the sort of same realm of discussing you know mental health and psychological illness it's just interesting when you put Shyamalan split against relic you know the two films deal with you know psychological diseases if you will or um, issues and how both of them are subverted into sort of a horror convention one drastically different to the other yet both of them in their own right are compelling features so it's just going to be very interesting to see the next five or six maybe ten years of horror um, like you said Paul I find that a really interesting notion to sort of, to sort of identify yeah I, I don't want to sound like I'm kind of trashing a whole 
genre, even though I'm a little bit. But um, I think with the like these kind of this recent trend of of horror films, they they get put up on such a pedestal because they had this sort of stuff hadn't been done like until recently. Whereas, like that, we should have like a much better opinion of it than that. Like, yeah, it is good that they're kind of tackling these subjects, but I don't think tackling these subjects and having good characters are mutually exclusive. Like, I think they can both be in the same thing. And as I said with Relic, I do, I think the idea is actually really good. The kind of the way the way it blends these the elements of dementia with more kind of like supernatural horror i think it's like a really good mix but the glue it needs to to stick these two things together is the characters for you to kind of connect with and i don't know if it's the script i don't know if it's the acting i think they're fine i don't think any of them are anything special in it but I think, yeah, it, it needs those two things to really make either of them work. And that's why I think for all three of you, you have kind of problems with the ending because you say it comes out of nowhere. I actually thought this this was a horror film like, throughout the whole thing. I never viewed it as a drama with horror elements. But I was never invested at all, really. So, yeah, it... it I mean, yeah, it's, it's it's a good idea. It's good that we're actually talking about horror with bigger themes, but I think we can go a step further than that. And Re- Relic should not be the end point. I don't think it will. I don't think this will have the same impact as Hereditary or The Babadook. I don't even think it will be close to them two. But I think there is a kind of another notch where these films can go. I do think, though, George, I think, I, I think you're right, mostly about the issue with horror and, and characters. And I think it's an issue that plagues a lot of audiences, purely because I think genre expectation is that you go in to watch a Friday the 13th film, to watch teenagers get slashed up by a monstrous killer. So it's, 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 I think it, they've been sort of given this idea of what a horror is. And I think I, I've, I've had the same issue as you, whereas... I find like 80s and 70s horror, there's such a big difference, obviously, because, you know, you've got like Polanski's Rosemary's Baby and then, you know, a few years later, you go to Friday the 13th, very different horror films. I think we're just going through the same phase now. And I think it's a phase, though, that's put off not only audiences, it's also put off directors. I mean, you look at auteurs in Hollywood, there's very few. And then there's a really good quote by Danny Boyle about sci-fi where, I mean, not now because it's one person you can, you can straight away say, well, that obviously contradicts yourself, but Danny Boyle came out after Sunshine and said it's very clear now why no one goes back and make, makes sci-fi films um, after, after you've gone in and, and made one. Obviously Ridley Scott is the, the prime example then, and James Cameron, but enough about that. I think horror is a very similar thing for auteurs. I mean, Scorsese's doubled it with Cape Fear, which was meant to be a Spielberg production. Then you've got, ironically, Spielberg allegedly on set of Poltergeist. There's very few... I mean, then you look at James Cameron with um, Piranha 2, which I believe he was fired from. There's very few directors who, I mean, you can argue Terminator 1's a horror film, but I think that's a debate for another time. So horror is really a starting off point. There's very few directors who come back and successfully do it. And now we're starting off with, you know, like uh, Natalie and, and Ari Aster and John Peel. They're beginning with horror. 
and then they're not forgetting about it they're just going through with it like an ultimate building a career upon that so maybe that might maybe that might sort of change your expectation i'm, I'm just trying to sort of think you know like jennifer kent's the babadook and, and then her follow-up which the name escapes me is an absolute roller coaster of just trauma uh, the nightingale yeah the nightingale I th- have you have you seen the nightingale george no, but I've heard it. So I, I think you've got definitely yeah, quite I think the bleak one. <laughs> you have you've most definitely got a week of of a really good horror ahead of you. I think I think it might change your mind about character because relics a difficult one to begin with. As Paul said, if you'd have watched Hereditary first and then maybe watched something else, it might have prepared you for this. Because that's where I feel I feel the same with you. I don't want to trash this. I feel more guilty because it's a directorial debut, but. And and to go back to Rory's point about this zeitgeist, it works within that those five or six films. Can, it does feel a part of it. Can I ask a question though? Um, yeah, of course. Would in any other genre, would you say you need to watch a completely unrelated film, albeit in a similar kind of? So it's like they're all Australian with similar themes. But if if I said, uh, take like a western for example, and I said you need to watch. The searches to like this film, I don't. I don't think saying you need to watch Hereditary. I can appreciate it more, but I still don't think if I watch if Hereditary, I, I like. It's not going to change my opinion of Relic. Mm. In fact, it'll make me think. Well, why can Relic do this? And I think no, I, I I understand that completely. It's almost like a detriment to the film as well. And yeah, and um, it's a str- It is a strange. One I think because... horror is unique in that way as well. I think horror kind of tends to be. It's like a closer genre, if you know what I mean. Hmm. It seems more like devote the more devoted fan base, and they get compared to each other a lot more often than say like sci-fi or kind of westerns or any, anything really. I think horror is a unique thing in in film. No, it, it is a definitely. It's a strange thing because I'm glad you brought it up because would we really do that in any other genre? I can't really think so. I can't imagine saying. Well, if you enjoyed the searches, maybe you should watch. If you didn't enjoy the searches, sorry, you should watch this, and maybe it'll change your opinion on it. It's a strange sort of place to be in with, but the only one I could explain about that is that if someone said I didn't like Bone, say if I didn't like a, a Bone Tomahawk, I would find it very, very difficult to be like, yeah, then don't watch any. If you if you don't watch that, like that combination of two genres, like drama and horror, work quite well, and then Western and horrors work quite well but there's nothing of it so this is a, it is a very strange one i must admit to to compare so I, i'm sort of lost now you sort of like i think i think i'm just saying that if if i have to watch hereditary to appreciate relic more then relic is not doing its job oh no I, I, have I, to watch, yeah. I, I don't think you have to watch hereditary to appreciate relic more i think what jack was saying is if you've seen these films you probably have a better idea of what to expect as opposed to i don't think one improves the other I just think it's kind of, it's very much of that ilk. It's not as good as those films, but it is certainly a continuation of those films. And I think like, kind of like when I saw the trailer, I thought, oh, this is going for a Babadook kind of hereditary vibe. So I think I had a better idea of what to expect. I think it's probably what he's getting at as opposed to saying, um, watch hereditary and improve relic because it's, it won't. <laughs> no, yeah, I, 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 I think, I think he is George. I think, I think he's probably he saved my, uh, saved my ass there. Cause I think that's what I am trying <laughs> to get at, but it, it is, but it is, it is, I think what you're trying to say, though, George, I think it is interesting to to compare films to sort of 
help help the viewer sort of expect the experience is a strange notion to sort of behold i can't really imagine doing that on any other sort of genre so it is an interesting thing to sort of point out yeah i, th I think they're okay to use as like touchstones but um i mean it could be that i watch hereditary and the the characters are just more relatable or I find them more interesting than this. So I I think for yeah, like for me it just it didn't work and it thinks solely on the on the characters. I just had no entry point into the film whatsoever. So it, it rendered kind of everything kind of moot really by the end of it. Even if I did think it had like plenty of good ideas actually. Like not just a few, I think it had enough good ideas. I know Kim Troll wants to I'll, um, sorry Josh, go on. Yeah. Yeah, I think she's she's definitely got a a future the director she well, didn't write the script though which is interesting that, that's what i was just about so, to ask because i know pietro yeah. wants to fire away but i was just going to say would even though you weren't sort of um you didn't really enjoy relic would you definitely stay for a, a sophomore effort for yeah yeah she's Jackie, yeah. yeah it's like the, she's got like a keen eye for visuals and uh like the production design's really good as, as you were mentioning that the atmosphere is like reasonably well done maybe if she writes her own script, then she can kind of bring that out a little bit more. So, but yeah, she's, it's definitely not a lost cause by any means. I just wanted to ask that, uh, if do you think that the problem is also the director's maturity? Meaning that uh, Ari Aster, Robert Eggers, David Robert Mitchell, all have a well-defined style, but I, I think that Natalia Erika James actually doesn't have uh, recognizable style yet. Yeah. You know what? what? Uh, no, I'll fire away because I think that that's a that's a point that I try to make in my in my uh, my overall argument. I think it is a it is a director who's not at that level of maturity so to sort of restrain themselves with with genre convention and tropes. I think if this was let's say um, James's third outing, or even a sophomore effort. But, but there was a horror debut before this. I don't think we would have got such an overly on-the-nose trope in that, in that final act. And I don't mean when all three characters are on the bed. I don't mean that. I mean the scenes before that, um, specifically wandering through the house. I think you're right, Pietro. I don't think we would have seen that. That being said, I can't really blame the director for, for going all out in, in, a, in, a, in an industry now, specifically to alluding back to what Paul said, is that it's a new wave of horror now. If you don't stand out, you get lost. And I think horrors, and as George said, it's such on a pedestal now, it's, it's beyond belief. I don't think we've ever had horror at this pinnacle time, being on such sort of a, a revered um, podium. So it's probably just, a, it's probably just a, being released at a strange time, whereas we'd probably have overlooked the issues maybe two or three years ago, but now there's so much competition and so much saturation it's difficult to sort of not not really identify that those little issues of tropes to be honest let's transition now to the eliza scanlon star and directorial debut of shannon murphy's baby teeth i can drop you at home after this moses oh no i, I don't want to put no, you out no trouble i can do it after i drop me low at school Hey, Moses, I don't know if you make a habit of this or not, that is, befriending girls that are significantly younger than yourself, but Miller's in a very vulnerable situation. 
Terminally ill teen upsets her parents when she falls in love with a small-time drug dealer. Paul, this was another film you reviewed this week. How did you find Baby Teeth? So yeah, Baby Teeth is is one of those films that I think um, has it's the kind of material that has either the propensity to go to either absolutely nail sort of emotional feelings or take it sort of one step too far, hammer you over the head, and cover it in kind of this sickly gloss um, that turns me off of a lot of films of this type. Um, thankfully, for the most part, uh, Baby Teeth, I think, nailed most of the emotional elements that it was going for. I think the emotional beats were good. I think the performances definitely helped that. Um, Eliza Scanlon, who was great in uh, Little Women, is superb, I think, here. Um, and it's got one of my all-time favourite actors, I'll be honest, Ben Mendelsohn, in a supporting role um, as her dad. Um, and I, yeah, for the most part, I thought this 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 really, really landed. Um, there are moments of it that I thought it was perhaps trying too hard to be a bit edgy and cool and a bit different. Um, and there were times when I kind of cringed a, a touch. Um, but for the most part, as I said, the performances, I think, absolutely landed it. I think it was, I think it was fairly snappily directed. Um, and I liked it. Uh, just following from Paul there, I think we probably had similar opinions about this. Um, as a directorial debut, I think this was a pretty strong way of uh, Murphy kind of cementing her style from the get-go. I think, I know George has slight issues with uh, the stylistic elements here, but um, the way she uses kind of on-screen text and colour and music, he's going to disagree with me in a second, I can see him shaking his head right now, but the way that they use colour and music and this like text that helps convey the character's feelings and also creates a kind of emotion within the film and this the, these create kind of really standout moments that really hit um and moving on from paul again i think ben mendelson is academy award worthy here i think in a in a in an arguably quite a slow year for the oscars so far or what will be a slow year when it comes around to a voting season i think his he's a shoe in for best supporting actor for sure. If not to win at least nomination because he's just so kind of vulnerable and he shows such an array of emotions. He's got great co-stars, but the fact that he stands out amongst Scanlon and the actress who plays his wife, who's another great actress, I forget her name. Uh, the fact that he stands out in that troupe is pretty remarkable. But uh, I will say, yeah, as, as a kind of film that tackles this terminal illness cancer issue i mean it's not breaking new ground in the sense that these are important films to be made but there are a lot that cover these issues but the way that it attacks it is different so whereas in a lot of films you'll see the diagnosis the process of treatments things like that in this it's all viewed from the outside in rather than the inside out you don't see any of the chemo or you know, anything like that, you see the way that this affects her and her family rather than how it is in the moment, if that makes sense. I mean, it's a very nice way to do it because it shows that it's more focused on the characters rather than just exposing how this kind of treatment works and functions. Uh, and I think Murphy's priorities, what she shows here is one, a distinct visual style, which I think I'm looking forward to seeing her, you know, using a lot of different narratives, but two, she knows how to prioritize character over 
everything else. And I think moving forward, that's what's making her especially promising. Yeah, for me, this is a very frustrating film because it's there's a clear divide like halfway through the film. I think the first half is kind of your standard indie film, like standard coming-of-age film. I think it tries a little bit too hard to uh, kind of be quirky with the title cards that, that Rory alluded to, which I couldn't stand. Like They were completely obnoxious, didn't add anything to the film whatsoever and were, were kind of distracting. And then they, they kind of go away for a bit and then they come back again towards the end. So I don't even think it's like a, a device that's consistently used. But... I think I think the strength of it is that all the performances are very good from from Scanlon, from Essie Davis as the mother. Well, I think she's probably the standout for me actually, and Ben Mendelsohn's uh, very good, and I think his name's Tobias Wallace as as Moses. the The problem is for me, and it's it's a really hard balancing act to get it. I do appreciate that it's trying to be more scattered in its approach by looking at the numerous people uh, involved in this scenario but the the trick it doesn't pull is that it never feels focused especially by the end it, it feels like we've gone kind of a long way and there's like a big lull to get there to the to the kind of the, the big emotional moments at the end and it's, it's quite a long film as well it's just under two hours I think it's way too long for this. I think you could easily shave out like 20 minutes here. But I, th- it's, I think Murphy's got quite a good visual style. I think the, the colour palette's quite good. The kind of vibrancy of the, the locations is good. Like the, the production design with the houses. It, it feels kind of a nice place to live. But it's, it's just a bit too scattered and all over the place for me to, to really hit home, even though there are some beats at the end, especially one scene that I'm sure we'll, we'll kind of touch on a little bit later. The, there's one scene that really does work, but it comes a little bit too late for me. I think after hearing all you three talk about, I think I might be the most well, most positive person here on it. I, I think I don't, want to call, I don't want to call this a masterpiece because that's, that's too, it's too, too cemented as a directorial debuts go, this this is incredibly solid. I think breakout star Eliza Scanlon is having an incredible year. This has a small sort of bullet cameo in, in Little Woman, but she keeps that film together with, with the emotional glue. And her sort of strange performance in Sharp Objects, I think she's having an incredible year, and this this only just cements it for me. I think the performances, what everyone's touched touched upon, are, are really, really, really solid as well. I think Ben Mendelsohn, as Rory said, I'll be there for that supporting um, Oscar nomination. He, I don't think he'll win it, but I think there's most definitely an argument there to have. I think Ezzie Davis is is quite solid as well, although her character sort of put to one side almost throughout the film with her small little arc of substance abuse and perhaps there's more two that I didn't I didn't really see from the film that may be my fault not the films but I felt there's a sort of conversation on drugs and abuse of drugs throughout the film which may be sort of an issue um, in Australia similar to the opioid crisis in America so I think that's probably just uh, subtextual comments from from Murphy but um, 
I thought it was an internally emotionally brooding feature from start to finish. And as, as George alluded to, there's a scene towards the end of the film that to, to, for me personally, it was beyond devastating. I, we watched Never Rarely, Sometimes Always a few, uh, few weeks ago on the podcast. And I came away from that feeling very changed from what I'd seen before. I, I just felt that was something different and it really got to me. But this was just something else. This was just devastating. That, that scene in particular was just heartbreaking to watch. I mean, it's not a dark film, but it's, it's, I, I felt it was quite often painful to watch emotionally because this, as Rory said, it, it's not, it's a film looking from the outside in rather than the inside, um, from the inside looking out. And I think that's a great sort of example of it. You don't see the emotional moments of chemotherapy. You don't see sort of the physical devastation of, of this disease. You just see it deteriorate without sort of much notice. And I think that's an incredible sort of subvert expectation from Mertha, how she sort of implements that because you, I think you don't expect it. You just see it in small quantities. And then before long, the inevitable arises where it just happens. And I think that's a, it's a great analogy for grief and, and for, for death. Whereas life can be so plain and easy uh, and then it becomes a roller coaster in a second. And it's, it's sort of, reaching that climax of, of when you drop and that sudden drop is just a, a feeling that is sort of immeasurable. So it's a, a, a gut punching film. I think Scallon showcases an astonishing subtle and, and skillful detection to, uh, with emotion. But I think Mendelssohn in that scene in particular towards the end is just, I mean, if that doesn't have sort of Oscar, candidacy written all over I don't know what else this year will I mean it's just incredible but I, I do want to sort of just end on the fact that it's shot in 166.1 aspect ratio which is an interesting sort of intimate usage of, of an aspect ratio that we sort of don't really see very often it's a very intimate engaging environment with the audience it's almost inescapable to watch at times but I think the color palette's incredible I think Toby Wallace is someone to look out for all in all I mean we've just spoken about two Australian films um, there's definitely some great cinema coming out of there lately. Well, for me, uh, the main problem for the movie is at the beginning, because you don't understand understand if it wants uh, to take a a teenage approach like the Fourteen Hour Stars, Stars, or if it wants to be a more dramatic movie. But when it starts and it, it goes through the ending, you really, really, really fall in love with the style, the actors, and, uh, and Eliza. And I think that the ending was really, really, really heartbreaking and really mature. And the directing style here is really uh, well-defined. Like you guys said, the color palette, the use of the format, and the, the script too. It was really, really, really mature. So that's it. Yeah, I was going to ask, what did uh, did everyone kind of warm to Moses by the end of it? Because I really didn't. I kind of hated him for the whole thing. I thought he was just such a horrible character. And I, I don't know if the film tries to make you warm towards him. It felt like that to me. But I think much of the enjoyment from it kind of depends on, on you gradually liking him 
and that was quite a big obstacle for me to overcome. Um, I so obviously initially he's a dis, he's an unlikable character, and obviously that's intentional. But I don't necessarily think the success of the film lies within you liking him. I don't think the film tries to justify him as a good character because they never show him doing anything inherently good. But I think his existence within the film is purely because he adds levity to Eliza Scanlon's character's life. And that's kind of his function. I don't think the film says he's inherently good because he does this. Because if you really think about that relationship, I mean, granted, you watch the film and it becomes a bit more understandable, but initially it's a little bit perverse in a sense. Like he's 23, she's a vulnerable 16-year-old. It's a bit of a bizarre relationship to begin with. But I think the importance of that character isn't in him becoming like a secondary protagonist, but in him, in you just understanding him as an important aspect of her life, an important, an important asset to her overall happiness, rather than a genuine contributor to the, the kind of morality of the story. I don't think he's ever meant to be good. And I won't say that I didn't like him. I'd say he comes off, at least to me personally, not as a lovable rogue isn't necessarily the way because he is a bit of a bastard throughout. And he doesn't do anything to justify us to actually like him. But I think the more you get to know him and the reason I grew to like him wasn't through what he does by himself or how his character changes. Because I think even, you know, after the film ends in this fictionalized reality, he'd go on and just carry on doing what he was doing, albeit slightly changed from this experience. I think, uh, yeah, it's all in him lightening up Eliza Scanlon's character's world a bit rather than us growing to like him and just uh, adding on to what you guys were saying the final scene in this is just an emotional you know meteorite hit if you will it's kind of comes out of nowhere to me I was a bit sideswiped by it because not to ruin anything or you know get anything away the plot here but it does come at a point when you think the film is over is all I'll say and then it kind of has an emotional crescendo at the very end and people talk about last minute stingers but that really is one of the times I can remember at least recently definitely this year having a real kind of not a post-credit stinger but a pre-credit stinger where it's just completely taken me by surprise and the credits roll and you're just sitting there slightly awestruck at what you've just seen in the last five minutes but um yeah that's how I'd say about Moses and the final scene yeah, I just wanted to sort of jump back on and, and just say how much I agree with you. I think uh, I'm kind of with George to a point on certain elements of this film. I thought, I did think, as I said, when, when I kind of started off, there's certain elements where it feels it's trying to, too hard to be edgy. I think, don't think that can be argued. And the title cards, yes, I would agree with, were far too on the nose. And I didn't, I didn't hate them, but I thought the film could have done without them. However, I'm totally on board with Rory and I think Jack on this one with the fact that this is a film that is made by its ending without a shadow of a doubt. I think whatever problem, whatever sort of minor quibbles and problems I had with the film up until the ending kind of were all blown out of the water by the fact that this left me in tears, I think twice towards the end of the film. And ultimately if a film engages an emotional response out of me, I can forgive a lot of its shortcomings. So yeah, I just want to sort of third or fourth, I guess in this case that, the end really makes this makes this work for me. And as a result, I ended up liking it more than I disliked it, despite some minor quibbles. So yeah, it's all about the end. 
I didn't want to use the word masterpiece earlier, so I'm going to contradict myself, but I'm going to sort of slightly sort of water that down. I think the ending scene is not only masterful, I think it's genius. Because the first thing I did when I watched it, and I watched the end of it, and I was like, like Paul, I was heartbroken. I had to sort of, in my mind, find out and trace when that scene narratively would have happened to see how that changed Ben Mendelsohn's character. And if you go back and you find out, because uh, Eliza Scanlon's character wears certain wigs throughout, you can sort of pinpoint within the context of the story where that scene would have been placed. And I watched it from that point on again to the end. And Ben Mendelssohn's character is even more wonderful and even more brilliant. There's a reason towards the end, and I don't want to spoil it, where Ezzie Davis's character is unloading everything upon Toby Wallace's character, and Ben Mendelssohn stays quiet. And I was, I, I was, and it didn't, in the moment, it didn't really hit me. I was, I was sort of, oh, that I was just sort of come to terms with, well, that, that's perhaps his, that's his grief. But within the context of that clip, it's even more masterfully done. And there's certain elements throughout where, Ben Mendelssohn's character is slowly sort of losing his sanity on more levels than one because of the pressure of his of his working relationship with his wife and also his relationship with, with his family. And I think that's a genius decision by Shannon Murtha where there's more layers to this. And, and while it comes as like a post-credit stinger, as, as, as Rory said, I think it does. And I think it leaves you tragically watching that, those final credits on the beach in that sort of moment of solace and happiness, knowing full well what we've just witnessed before and in the, in the, in the scene before, especially with the, the birthing as well. It's, it's an interesting sort of element, what Shannon Murphy does about life and, you know, something comes into this life and fortunately something is then taken out. But just to, just to go on about Ben Mendelsohn's character, I think it's just reinforced how magnetic and amazing he is in this film, truly. Another thing I like, talking about subversive filmmaking, this is as I said, belongs to a genre where it's all kind of very dramatic, kind of tear-jerking films, which this belongs to that stable. But I also liked how it was more focused on hope and kind of joviality than a lot of these other uh, films are. Like Eliza Scanlon, obviously it revolves around her having contracting cancer, which is obviously the tragic core of the story. But in a sense, the story isn't about that. It's not a cancer story. It's a coming of age story about, you know, young love and kind of the youthful spirit. And, you know, it's not spent in hospital wards or, you know, parents sing at bedsides. It's spent with her out on the town with her drug dealer boyfriends, you know, going to parties and dancing and drinking and doing all the things that kids do. It's not about her, you know, having an existential crisis and anything like that. It's focused on, coming of age the cancer just happens to be something that is affecting this particular character and that's another attribute so I think Murphy's directing here is the fact that she focuses on that rather than the more run-of-the-mill uh, formulaic films that tackle the same issues so the fact that it doesn't directly address this horrible virus and rather tries to focus on other aspects of Eloise Scanlon's life, because that isn't all that defines her. She's not defined by this illness. She's, you know, a young, creative, talented kid who just happens to be affected by this. And I think that's a really interesting and innovative way to tell this kind of story. To, to what George said about, before about Toby Wallace's character, 
the film does play a very thin line between him being an absolute bastard, as you said, Rory, or someone who is wonderfully naive in this world where he puts on a persona that he's, he's bigger than everything and, and emotion is, is not his strong suit and then ultimately becomes more human and, and emotional, emotionally aware throughout the film. There is a point, there's two points I can sort of pick up on. One is on a rooftop where it's very difficult to come back from that, but I think as an audience you sort of do just because of Eliza Scanlon's performance and how the narrative sort of weaves Toby Wallace's characters in. <clears throat> Excuse me. But there is one point towards the finale of the film where Eliza Scanlon and Toby Wallace are in a bed. Now, on a narrative level, I can understand it, and from a character level, I can understand it. So it does work contextually, but that is a point of no return for, for Toby Wallace's character, of an action that is meant to go through on. I don't want to sort of allude any more than that because it's a very pivotal scene to the film. But that for me was was very, that was literally on, on trying to describe it to, to make it a, a metaphor for it, but I can't sort of explain how close that was for me to just absolutely annihilate that character in my mind. It, it was just, it was just so, such a thin line between overstepping the mark for that and it just being really then difficult to sort of come back from or to, or to understand the plight of what was happening. So I don't know how, how, how you three felt about that. I mean, I, I think it should be noted that there's quite a sizable age difference between uh, between the two characters. So that, that's like the first kind of barrier to overcome. And that's like laid out quite early in the film. But he, for me, and I, I, Rory's point about he is there not for the audience, but for, um, for Eliza Scanlon's character is, is 100% true. Even kind of, uh, ben Mendelssohn's character acknowledges that he, there's one scene where he says I really don't like you, I'm doing this for her but that is when he when Moses is in every scene, even though you know he why he's there for me personally, I could, I could not ignore the fact that I did not want him there just because I loathed him so much and that's even before uh, the stuff happens which you've just alluded to, he he was way gone by that point for me. There was like numerous times where I wish he was going. And it, to go back to what Rory said, it's completely understandable why he's there. But it, for me, it was like the biggest barrier to overcome because he is just so unlikable. And even, even with that, there's, there's still a point where I as a viewer have to interact with the film. So, I mean, to its credit, it's, it's kind of getting a, an emotional reaction out of me. But it's it's the wrong one. And no matter how much kind of... Because I do really like the other three characters. And the, you kind of are wishing that they just get this piece of shit out of the house, to be honest. But you're willing it on. Well, me anyway, I'm willing it on. And it was, yeah, it was, it was too, too big a barrier for me to overcome, I think. Even even with as we said, like, the absolutely amazing ending scene, and I, I do think that does lift it a bit. Like what Paul was saying, it it, it definitely does because it does round out the whole thing, and it does give it that emotional weight. But for me personally, there's there's too many problems with it to to kind of go overboard for a, a two minute scene at the end to make up for it. 
let's move on next to Karida's The Truth. And you okay? Karida is a Japanese filmmaker who garnered a universal acclaim with the likes of Shoplifters and Still Walking. His first venture into non-Japanese cinema is with French drama The Truth. George, is The Truth the spellbinding follow-up to Karida's Shoplifters, or is it an underwhelming dud? Uh, I would say neither. It's, it's not as good as Shoplifters, but it's def- definitely not a dud. I think with international directors, it's always interesting to see what their kind of first foray into another language will be. So if you look at kind of Karida's, probably the only two Asian directors bigger than Karida at the moment are Bong Joon-ho and Park Chan-wook and their respective debuts, so Snowpiercer and, and Stoker. And it's interesting to see what they carry over from their, their previous films and what they bring into the to the new one. I think on the surface, the truth seems like a wildly different effort from Karida. But I think when once you kind of look at the the themes, it's like, it's actually a slight inverse of his previous stuff. He's always been interested in what defines a family, especially in uh, the modern day, and what a functional family entails. So if you look at Still Walking and Our Little Sister and, and Shoplifters as well, it's about acknowledging the dysfunction and trying to work with it. I think the truth is much more about that dysfunction. I think it's much more about the roots and the causes of where these things come from. But the added thing with it is that it's... Uh, um, much more a film about film as well and in that regard it is, it's very French like very French so and the the probably the problem with it is that it doesn't do enough new either in what he's doing with his previous work or in the general theme of kind of the divide between art and personal life and I, I, I think that's the problem with it it doesn't do enough new in either of those regards but what it is it's quite watchable it's like a, a breezy one hour 40 film the characters are like quite strong they're distinctive if not all likable certainly in the case of, of the lead character and the performances are top notch throughout so Juliette Binoche uh, Catherine Deneuve I think I pronounced that right I don't want to butcher it and Ethan Hawke as well, who even though he's not in it too much, he's he's very good when he is in it. So yeah, I mean, it's 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 enjoyable. It's minor Karida, I would say, it's definitely not up there with his with his best work. But it's you know it's it's a good time. I have very 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 similar thoughts um, to you, George. I had the pleasure of seeing this um, at the Venice Film Festival last September. And to say I was slightly underwhelmed might be an understatement, but I think I, I think by definition, this is a film that, that did underwhelm me nonetheless. For an English language feature debut, it's a very safe bet compared to the likes of, of what you mentioned, George Snowpiercer and Shannon Park Stoker. 
this just felt like slightly just empty for me. It's a film that feels like, and I'm going to take the words straight out of your mouth, George, but this feels like a Woody Allen film in 1993. It just feels so in-house and inside baseball. It doesn't really open itself up for the audience to sort of indulge in. I just felt that in a small quote, it was small moments of tension that amass into prolonged emotional chaos. And that's it. And, I, and, and you're probably all wondering, well, yeah, that's, that's what the film's about. But it's an interesting. The film opens the world up to more characters, when perhaps a more central internal combustion of the characters would be stronger. So, if this was just set in one house, and this was a family getting together, and you still had all the characters being within this film industry, and they had certain vices, and they had issues internally, I think if you would just have it as over one evening. Um, like Ben, ben Whitley's Colin Burnstead is, you'd have such like an emotional engulfing film that would then showcase the performance as a little bit stronger. You could have a lot more like Venom. It would just be a far more engaging venture and more emotionally escapable um, of a conviction to this family brooding. It's a good film, but it's not a great film. And especially what's expected from Corrida. I think disappointing, underwhelming is most definitely how I feel on it. But I think the performances are good. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna also butcher butcher it, George. But um, uh, Den, Den, <laughs> Catherine Denive works wonders, as does Benoche. I mean, they construct a ferocious appetite of a, like linguistic destruction against each other. But after a, after a while, it sort of just goes into this brooding, self indulgent, Woody Allen esque. Feel sorry for me because I'm I'm a person who's outside of my industry now and I've still got what it takes what people underestimate me but it goes on for an hour and 50 minutes so I'm just sort of left dis disappointed as well but there's definitely something here to enjoy it's it, if you're just wanting to watch sort of like a Wes Anderson inspired role Tenenbaums with less shtick and more profound sort of poignant themes this is it for you but for me for me but almost seeing it a year ago, it doesn't live very long in the memory. Uh, so I'm ashamed to say that this is my first Corrida uh, film. So unlike you guys, obviously I heard about the critical acclaim for Shoplifters when it came out because that was pretty huge. But um, yeah, I didn't really have any expectations or I just didn't know what this was going to look like or anything like that. But I knew it was from a prestige director with obviously a great cast that premiered at Venice. So I was, I was interested to see what was going on here. And as Jack was saying before we recorded, I think my, my main issue with critiquing this film is that I just don't really have much to say. It kind of sets out what it wants to be, which is a kind of taut, quiet, domestic drama, you know, with nice like performances from actors who reliably deliver and it does that very well. I mean, for what it was aiming for, it completely nailed it, but it's not aiming for very much. I don't want to sound like a bit of an arsehole, some guy who's never made a film in his life, you know, standing here critiquing this guy who's just achieved unbelievable amounts in his career. But for someone, I was really expecting more. And that's coming from someone who hasn't seen anything that he's made. It just doesn't, I kind of got to the end of it and thought, fine but is that it and that's the main issue here is that it doesn't aim for anything more than it is 
Uh, as George was saying, Juliette Binoche is great. I think she's one of the kind of most valuable actresses we have working today. I'd love to see her branch out with some more kind of old tour directors like this. Uh, Catherine Deneuve is brilliant. She's kind of the focal point, this kind of sour, but still loving, but emotionally distant matriarch who, I, I know people like her in real life, I'd, I'd, I'd suppose. <laughs> Uh, and it's kind of a strange relationship. Someone who was never particularly close with their child growing up, but still has a lot of love for them. And issues with the past have led to this increased distance over time. And what the child perceives as not hatred, but, you know, an emotional barrier. But what the mother perceives as something being taken from her that was beyond the child's control. It's all very complex and it all makes sense when you actually watch the film and it charts a very emotional uh, roller coaster between these two, which is played off expertly. I think that the very, the very, very precise relationship that Binoche and her mother, played by Deneuve, have in this film is absolutely nailed. The kind of intricacies of it are just, yeah, wonderful. Uh, Ethan Hawke is, I mean, this is, I wouldn't say glorified cameo. He's got, he's got a decent role in this, but it's nothing major considering he's probably the biggest name attached to it from a western viewer but i thought he was great he exudes a lot of warmth as this father figure um he's got issues like the rest of them and i think it's nice that Kareda, even though he's such a minor role in the story i don't think his presence actually impacts the main story whatsoever aside from the fact that he's there just being the husband i mean if he was in this is the amanda seafried to your kevin bacon in you and uh, you should have left this is a much better film than that, but that's the same kind of role that we're talking here. Um, but yeah, I think he does it wonderfully. He's very warm, um, very, you know, he's Ethan Hawke. He's exactly what you want him to be. He's a great character actor and he completely nails this. It's the kind of Yankee who's coming to France and the mom's not really sure what he's about. Um, and there's a particular scene in this film, probably the only scene that I'll remember from this in the long term is where they go out to dinner and then they go out and they're just dancing in the streets outside this restaurant and it's all very nice and romantic. But the editing I found a bit confusing here. It's probably intentional, but moments of levity are always abruptly cut short, which I can understand when the relationship between Binoche and her mother is tense as it is for the majority of the film. But as they grow more understanding of each other, this continues which is something I don't really understand because I thought it was meant to represent the fact that these two can't fully connect and can't fully have these nice moments together. But it seems to be something that continues. I'm not sure if that's intentional or not, but that was just something I found a bit weird. Um, but apart from that, yeah, the truth, it's, in, it's a not particularly interesting, well-acted, well-directed, does exactly what it says in the tin, family drama. I mean, if you want to watch it, watch that or watch August of Sage County or watch Colin Burstead or watch, you know, anything else, you know, it's nothing new. Yeah, I was, I, I was just... Sorry, George, go on. Yeah, I was going to add that thing from compared to Karida's previous output, I'd say this is probably the most darkly comic. I think his other uh, films are quite... maybe a little bit whimsical, and I, I wouldn't say this is. The, the thing that this lacks is I do think it lacks heart. It is quite. It's not. It's not like Woody Allen neurotic, but it's 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 kind of getting there. I think the closest thing in recent memory to this would be uh, Paolo Sorrentino's Youth, but what this doesn't have is 
the emotional beats and the the kind of visual style to really push this above and that, that's not Karida's game Karida is kind of a, a minimalist in that regard but I think when you're tackling subject matter like this you you do need something to really kind of push the boat out and it what it never gets there but I was never bored while watching it it was it was pleasant enough I will never watch it again it's definitely not up there in it's not even close to Karida's best films but I mean in a year such as this I think the truth is a you know it's, it's welcomed Sorry, I, I, I don't know if anyone else just started sweating uncontrollably when Rory mentioned you should have left. It may just have been me. Um, I do want to mention, though, um, getting on from that horrible Kevin Bacon film that generally makes me have sleepless nights, I think that one of the biggest problems I, I find now with the truth, just just speaking on it a bit more, is that it's like constructed almost like a play, and it's a play with no emotion. So it, 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 the glue is the screenplay, but it's not emotive enough. So it just feels bland. So you're watching these characters interact and because it's such a strict formula with, with what a play is, it's so, it, that narrative has to be so strong because I think a lot of people say like, you know, if you have a, if you have a great screenplay, you can, you can put it on loads of mediums and it will still suffice. Whereas I, I don't think that's entirely true about a, a screenplay between theatre and, 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 and the medium of film. I don't think they, they gel very well. And I think this is one of those examples where if there is meant to be a lot of emotion here, and there clearly is between the characters and how they're constructed, there's a lot of that animosity, so there's emotion there just by, by that definition, but it just doesn't get showcased anywhere. I mean, the, the, the only way it comes through is through the, the characters, but even then, it goes back down to the script where there's a lot of... I found that it was slightly... And this is very, very strange to say, but I found it was very emotional manipulative, and I know that's what a film's meant to do, but I, I found it sort of working not in its favour rather than it want, it needed me to, to sort of be engulfed and it was doing that by any means of imagination rather than organically doing it and as soon as a, as an audience member as a viewer I can see that it's doing that it's purposely doing it to an extent where I can I can feel it I can almost see it almost in this film it just turned me off completely and I think if that's within the, next, the first 20 minutes or so I've, it was just a slog to get through and I don't want to sort of repeat myself, and, and I understand that you can't really expect another masterpiece from Karida, but I'm just very shocked that this was his sort of next follow-up effort to then make a sort of parody-esque dent in the film industry world, especially the French film industry. It was just, it's just a very strange follow-up. I found that I just don't have any sort of emotional connection with whatsoever. I mean, where he goes from this will be interesting, but I don't think this is even a festival piece. I don't think this would have played well at Cannes. I, I think it played relatively well at, at Venice, but I mean, most European films do, but it just, it just feels like an empty sort of lifetime film. And I, and I, don't, I, don't, I know that's so nasty to say when we're talking about a critically acclaimed director as Corrida, but I, I was just left so empty with this completely. And even on the, the Ethan Hawke thing, it, it just felt like it was a staple American role that they happened to have Ethan Hawke performing because he's a fan of Corrida after probably watching Shoplifters. It just felt so off. Everything felt so off. It was such a French film by an Asian director with an American 
cast member and everything just feels like it's pulled together to make it work but it's sort of like I, ideology wise it just doesn't really come together for me I would rather have just seen someone else make this maybe like a a young up, up and coming French director rather than Corita waste his time on it I was, I was just going to mention that um, the casting of Ethan Hawke I do actually think is played for laughs because there's one scene in particular where he he kind of just mills around the house for most of the film and he has a conversation with with the matriarch, and he he does he speaks very little French, and she either doesn't speak much English or she just refuses to because she's too stubborn. So she's having this one-sided conversation, and he is not not getting a word of it. And I think kind of the the empty look on his face, and he's it's just everything is just passing him by completely. I did I did find quite funny. Uh, to be honest. I have very little else to say, to be honest, about the truth. I was really disappointed that if anyone else wants to go in, we can go in or we can just finish and we can move on to Hamilton if anyone likes. It's just, it's just, it's just bland. It's, yeah. It's not bad. It's just so bog standard family drama, you know? I'll go in a little bit more on it, bollocks, so I might as well. <laughs> I'll get hyped up on the... my last bit. That's like a really weird bit to end on. So yeah, I'll I'll, I'll go in again then. I'm gonna just absolutely just rip what Rory said. Though I'm gonna completely just take what he said and use it as my own. Words, I've, I've got nothing right. to, to say on it more really. I'll I'll, I'll round it out then. I'll, I'll say my little yeah. piece on it. I think it is. I think it is just that. I think by definition, it's bland. It's underwhelming. It's disappointing from a possible author that's come off a an Oscar-nominated feature to come out with this feels like he's cleansing his palette and I think it's very similar to what we spoke about before about Ben Wheatley how Ben Wheatley does one film for the studio system and then does one film for himself almost like cleansing his internal palette but we've seen that by many directors do Sam Mendes with Skyfall then going back into to shooting Willy Wonka then going to Spectra and then going back into 1917 it's, it's making a personal film that so sort of elevates your own craft rather than being sort of swarmed by the studio system. So perhaps that's what creator's done with this, but with the cast he's got, it doesn't feel like it's a personal film that means a lot to him. And that's just me judging by the final product. Perhaps it is. Maybe it's been in the works for a long time. Whereas to me, it feels like, and again, to retreat, uh, Colin Burns said, uh, Ben Wheatley's film, it just feels like, he had the opportunity to make a film, well, different to, to, to Ben Lewis's film, however, uh, I'll just clarify that. It feels like a film where all the pieces came together and he had no time to sort of go with it and just made it. Whereas Colin Burns said, feels like a film where Ben Wheatley got all of his mates together to make a corker of a film that means something. And I think that's what the difference here. I think they're very, they're probably two very similar themes thematically with a, with a enraging family that's brooding constantly but whereas Wheatley's film's more dynamic it's more multifaceted and the main character's not your standard quintessential protagonist and the characters within themselves are all flawed and there's a lot more going on within the underbelly this sort of just shows its cards all together I think it comes way too early and at, before the end, before you get to that sort of that pivotal scene with 
Catherine um, Deneuve's character performing on a film set where she gives quite a poignant monologue to character within the film within a film's performance. I think it, it just comes a little too late to, to sort of get you strapped in. To round out Clappercast, we like to end on some of our latest film or TV recommendations. George, let's begin with you this week. Uh, so my recommendation for this week is an early Hitchcock film uh, from when he was still working in Britain from 1938. It's called The Lady Vanishes. Uh, the title's quite self-explanatory. It's a load of strangers on a train. One of them vanishes, or did she really vanish, or is it was she a figment of a uh, character's imagination? Uh, I think it's a really good entry point for anyone wanting to get into Hitchcock. It's got really good use of suspense. But I think more so than his other films, there's really good comic timing in this one. Uh, it doesn't take itself seriously. I think it's only about an hour and a half long, so it's like an absolute breeze to get through. Uh, some of the action's a bit iffy, but yeah, I think if, if you're looking to get into Hitchcock, then this is a great starting point. Rory? Uh, I was talking the other week, being a big advocate for uh, Ben Zeitlin's Wendy which we covered, um, which I hope I've got some of you guys on. I think Paul's had a look in. Uh, so I instantly, the day off, the day we recorded that, watched uh, Beasts of the Southern Wild, which was his directorial debut about the post-Katrina, I suppose, wetlands in, in the States. And it's another film where he merges kind of a grim reality with fantasy except he does it in such a fashion that's very unique to his style. It's hard to describe if you haven't seen them, so I definitely recommend just going in blind and watching them. Uh, once again, the score is fantastic, which he and Dan Roma did, again, as they did for Wendy. Um, I just can't get enough of the music that those guys make in those films. It's so brilliant. Um, and this is more of a father-daughter relationship, whereas the... Uh, relationships and Wendy were more kind of fraternal uh, and it's yeah it's just a really uplifting emotional uh, modern fairy tale set in this fictional place called the bathtub which is in a sense it's kind of an allegory for the post-hurricane Katrina world but yeah it's it's pretty fantastic and I'd definitely recommend that. Paul? Um, so yeah, the one thing I rewatched this week, and also yeah, thank you guys for the Wendy recommendation last week. I did watch Wendy, and I absolutely loved it. So uh, I should have watched it sooner, and I could have talked about it on the show. So I'm not going to bore you with that now because you guys did such a good job on it last week. But thank you for that, Rory. I did have a, a great time with Wendy, so that was good. Um, a film that I did watch this week that's not up to the caliber of Wendy but by a long standard was um, Critters from 1986. Um, I have fond memories of Critters because years ago with some friends of mine, we did a Critters night where we did all four Critters films in one evening. Uh, with quite a lot to drink and by the end of the evening we'd all fallen out because Critters 3 and 4 are truly truly bad films so uh, that aside I, but I still had fond memories of the original and for the most part I, th I think it just about stands up as a silly as a silly b-movie don't get me wrong it's an obvious tear off of gremlins there's no doubt in that for anyone who hasn't seen it these little critters like hairy critters basically a hairy gremlins arrives from space um, are chased by some very bizarre sort of shape-shifting bounty hunters so it's absolute nonsense but it's a fun enough B-movie in its own right. If you thought Gremlins didn't have enough blood and swearing in it, then Critters is where to look. So it's a fun enough B-movie. It didn't change the world. But if you haven't seen it and you like that kind of thing, check it out. Well, that is it for this week's episode of Clubbercast. Where can we find everyone on social media? Rory? 
Uh, you can find me on Letterboxd at Ross227. George? You can find me on Letterboxd and Twitter at GeorgeLewis97, Lewis with two S's. And Paul? You can find me on Twitter at HKCavalier1982 and on Letterboxd as HamSolo77. You can find me both at Letterboxd and Twitter with the at JackLukeSharp. You can find all the latest releases of film and television reviewed at www.clapperltd.co.uk and find out social links on Clapper Facebook and at ClapperLTD on Twitter. Make sure to rate, subscribe or follow us to be notified when the next episode comes out. Thank you all for listening and we'll be back next week with all things cinema.